Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 166 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part two of episode number 166 of May 16 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm just going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I am Sam Williams, and I am a 26-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a 60 music fan slash expert slash and each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist in 60 with the show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and do my own personal analysis on the range of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show, deep, deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, We'll see the song was recorded at, talk about the session musicians that played on the song, or, and talk, or talk about the band members that played on it, talk about the history behind the song, or who wrote the song, produced it, produced it, the studio song was recorded at, and the peak position song made up originally in the Billboard Hot 100 charts when it came out in the, in the year when the song was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on to this week's episode of the podcast, uh, I just want to fill you guys in on some things. Well... Uh, first of all, I'm sure you noticed this. Uh, there hasn't been any interview episodes on this particular feed this year. And the, to be honest with you, there won't be any. From here on out, all the interview episodes are going to be on my new premium subscription feed for this podcast. Which, it, just in case you forgot, I'm going to say this again. You know, I'm probably going to keep saying this until you guys actually kind of take a look at it. But just in case you forgot, the premium feed where you'll find all of the current and upcoming interview episodes of this podcast, and there will be more. I just, I, I put out one, I just did one that's going to be out very, very soon, and that's with Felix Cavalier, the Rascals. I got one with Don Danman, the Circle, coming up, and I hopefully have one with Stan Ziska, the lead, uh, the uh, background singer of Dion. Um, hopefully. But definitely Don Danneman, uh, that's coming up, and I just did one with those Cavalieri, and I there's another one, there's one out right now with a couple guys from 1910 Fruit Company. All all those interviews are not going to be on this feed, and I uh, I'm going to remind you guys of this just in case you guys forgot. But the way to access these interview episodes is that the link to the premium subscription sign up for the for the premium version of this podcast is in the description of this episode of this podcast. Now, um, I will give you I will say this. Um, I'm gonna give you a heads up about something. If you if you uh, if you had trouble signing up through Spotify, uh, I I don't blame you because it's a little tricky doing doing it through that because what you have to do, and this is probably the easiest way to do it, is that you have to create an account through Supercast, and you do that by clicking the first link in the description of this episode of this podcast where. It takes you to the Supercast website. You just create a username and password. And then basically when you sign up for it, you give give them your credit card information. And then basically when you sign up for it, you'll you're in. You know, you 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 give you pay for it and then it gives you a bunch of links to where you can access the premium feed of this podcast. Um, now from my just from experimenting with certain people, um, when you do that, uh, Spotify doesn't necessarily show up. 
I did for me because I actually signed up for a Supercast Premium podcast, and it, and it did show up on my feed through Spotify, but it's still a little glitchy from, from other people who have tried to, done it, tried to do it. So, um, you know, you, the way you want to do this is that you want to sign up directly through Supercast, and if you're not a Spotify user, great, because uh, that's the easiest way to access the premium feed is through Apple Podcasts and some of the other players. So, you know, if, you, if you're not a fan of Spotify, and I'm sure you probably aren't because of some of the some of the controversy that the streaming service has been under lately. Um, but if you don't like Spotify and you like Apple Podcasts better than perfect because you can access the premium f- subscription fee this episode of this podcast through Apple Podcasts. And the way to do it is to go click the link to the description of this episode of this podcast. The first one where it's the premium sign up for this through Supercast. Create a new username and password, and then you're in basically. You pay for it with whatever credit card, Apple Pay, however you want to pay for it, and then you're in basically. So um, you might want to do that pretty soon because, like I said, I have Don Derriman coming up, and I just did Felix Cavalieri, and that'll be out this week. And I also did – I have two I have uh, two guys who are part of one interview that I just put out for the uh, first premium episode this premium subscription episode of this podcast that that one's already out so you're going to want to sign up you know because you know you don't want to miss out on these interview episodes trust me and you'd be helping me continue to do this podcast because eventually after the two months are over your two month free trial is over i'll get that money from you so now help me continue to do this podcast i can use that money to pay for this upcoming bill i have for this podcast so please go do that i really really appreciate if you can go do that so um and yeah, other than that, um, I, I just did the first recording session for my next EP. Um, I'm going to do another one soon because there's some parts on the drums that I did that I'm not happy with. I want to redo. And but other than that, everything else sounds great. Um, I'm very excited to um, do more recording sessions for this EP. And I'm going to shoot my next music video at the end of this month. So that's very exciting. Um, you know, I'll keep you guys posted on any other updates I have. But let's get started. Let's get started this week's show. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind this group, the Cowsills. And while we're at it, let's also talk about the history behind last week's song, The Rain, The Park, and Other Things. But first, let's get into this Cowsills history. Because they have such a really interesting and incredibly fascinating story, this group. And it's different from a lot of other groups that I've done on this podcast. It's very, very different. I mean, it's different, but it's also similar. I mean, there's a lot of... You can make a lot of parallels with groups from other groups from the 60s and the Cowsills, but the Cowsills story was unique and very different, and I'll tell you why right now. Because I hinted to this last week, but the Cowsills are the first ever group I'm doing on my podcast that is not only a group of family members who are all related to each other, but it's also a group of young kids meaning the oldest the, the oldest guys in the group were 19, 20 years old. Everyone else was younger than that. So think about that for a minute. 90% of groups from the 60s consisted of, of, of people that were in their 20s, early 20s, like 20s, 21, 22, 23. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the Cow Sills, there was a couple, there were like, two or three guys that were that were like 18, 19, 20, but then everyone else was younger than that. I mean, the Cowsills were a big family, so there was quite a few members of the family in the group. And, uh, you know, and they were all, for the most part, young 
really, really young kids. Um, and it's kind of interesting to think about that because, uh, you know, by the time they had their second hit record, uh, basically they were, they were, um, they were, um, they were, they were, they were grad, they were just, they had just graduated from high school. So they were, they were just out of high school by the time they had their first and second hit records, the young, the oldest people in the group at that time. So they were really, really young kids and they were all related to each other. And that's the other thing that was so unique about the Cowsills was that the group, you know, everyone in the group was related to each other, blood related to each other. It's not like there was a couple, couple, you know, some family members, but then a couple guys that weren't related. I mean, everyone was, everyone was in the family. It was just like the Beach Boys, except the Beach Boys were a lot older than that. I mean, in the, in the late early 60s, they were young, but... By the time the castles came about, they were much, 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 much younger than the Beach Boys, for sure. I mean, the youngest was Susan, and Susan was just a, just literally like a kid when the, when the group was coming about. So, um, you know, and because of this, the Cowsills, you know, went through a lot of, you know, difficult struggles as a family, um, you know, particularly with their dad. But I'll get more into that in a minute. But the Cowsills... You know, as much as the, as much success that they had as a group, they also went through a lot of difficult times, you know, especially after the group ended, because a lot of their misfortunate sort of shortcomings that they experienced were not because of how great they how bad they were, because they were phenomenal. I mean, the Cowsills were amazing singers. I mean, like I said, they had that heart group vocal group harmony, that family vocal group harmony thing that was completely different from everybody else who was singing in groups at that time. But the thing is about the cow sales is that unfortunately they, they, they had fine. They went through a lot of financial difficulties after their group ended. And it's mainly because of their dad. And I'll talk more about that later on in this podcast, but their dad was, you know, not very kind to them. And, you know, unfortunately they, they went through a lot of difficulties as a, as a family, mainly because of their dad. And, you know, it's, it's kind of unfortunate because, you know, as family groups is, are of that time, I mean, the two greatest examples, the Beach Boys and the Jackson 5, if you look closely into those groups' history, you know, a lot of their issues, you know, a lot of them stemmed from their dad initially. Uh, their dad had a lot of problems, and it was, you know, if you look at the history of the Cowsills, you'll see a big, you'll see huge parallels between them and the Beach Boys and the Jackson 5 because all those groups have one major thing in common. The one thing that those all those groups have in common is that their dad was very much not on the good end as far as being a father is concerned. Uh, you know, the Bud, Bud, Bud Cowsill, who was, the, who was the father of the Cowsills, had a lot of issues. And we'll talk more about that uh, later on in this episode. But he, you know, had a lot of problems. And, that, and those problems, unfortunately, did the family dirty. But... The main thing to keep in, want you to keep in mind about the cow sales is that despite those issues that they had with their dad and, you know, some other family things, too, uh, they, they're still going on strong to this day and they haven't given up on the music industry. I mean, heck, they're still out there touring, you know, as a, three of the family members are still out there touring and they actually do their own podcast. They actually host their own podcast now where they bring in guests from other, and they, they have a ton of music industry friends who are making music back in the 60s and they, they have them on as guests on their show. So they're very still very much still going to this day. 
and they just persevered through many, many years of difficult times, uh, more specifically after the group ended. But, um, you know, they're just, you know, and they're still very talented, still really good. I mean, uh, quite a few of them are alive because, you know, they were young. They were the younger part of most 60s groups. Like I said, like most 60s groups were younger than the, they're older than the Cowsills. I mean, the Cowsills were the younger set between all the other 60s groups. I mean, the older, the, most groups are older than them. So most, a lot, most of the Cowsills are still alive, are still alive except for a couple people. But I mean, the thing you have to keep in mind about them is that they were kind of, the precursor to, you know, the Osmonds, Jackson 5, this whole thing where this whole thing that happened in the early 70s where like 1970, 1971, where people were fascinated with a, gr a family group of kids making pop music. I mean, they were the precursor to all that because they had had hits way before the Jackson 5 and the Osmonds. So they were, you know, they were they were pretty early in the game when it came to that. And you know, they were just a great example of a family group that went through a lot, but at the end of the day still came out very strong and very talented and very, you know, uh, still in it to win it, really, after all these years and still killing it out there, playing shows and, you know, making new music and, you know, doing a lot of things. But um, let's get into their history now. Okay, so the main thing I want you to keep in mind about the Cowsills is that there's always a really fascinating story about how a group of a family got into music or how people get into music in, ge in general. But the thing, the thing you want to keep in mind about the cow sales is that for them, how it could have happened was because of this. The cow sales were from a very, very musical city. Um, you know, it was a huge city in terms of the music industry back in the fifties and sixties. This was a big, big city. In, in the music industry in, in, the, in the 50s and 60s. And it wasn't New York. It wasn't Nashville. It wasn't Los Angeles. It, it wasn't, you know, Detroit or Chicago or Philadelphia. It was a very different kind of a city, but it was still on the East Coast. And the reason why it was so big was because there were two huge music festivals that happened every year in, in the city. And the city I'm talking about is Newport, Rhode Island. And when when the thing is about the about uh, the Newport is that there were two huge festivals that happened every year in Newport in the fifties and sixties. They were called the Newport Folk Festival, and Newport Jazz Festival. Now these were the biggest music festivals at that time. You know, almost sort of like the Coachella of back in the sixties. If you, if you, if you you know that's how big they were, and they had all kinds of people who you know who did the who did the who did the new pork folk folk festival everyone from peter paul and mary to bob dylan and john coltrade to you know to you know i mean like everybody did the new pork folk festivals back then i mean it was just like and the jazz festivals i mean you know it was it was the one of the biggest um you know i mean miles davis uh i mean like all the big names in jazz uh did 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 these did these festivals they were so big and the castles were brought up in newport so at being a family and growing up in newport they got to go to all these festivals i mean you know they've said on their podcast they, they actually saw bob dylan 
play his very first gig plugged in playing electric guitar at the Newport Folk Festival, the one where he got booed off stage because everybody hated what he was doing because everyone loved him playing acoustically, but everyone hated this new sound that he had where he was plugging in playing electric. So, I mean, you know, it's it's a real, you know, they, they were exposed to all of that. And them being exposed to that music, and of course, them seeing the Beatles live on Ed Sullivan on February 1964, and everybody saw that, uh, you know, phenomenon happen. I mean, between that, they, you know, they basically, you know, they got into music. And, but the interesting thing about, the, about the, the, their beginnings is that, uh, that, you know, they started out, the, the, the first people that got into the, to the music thing uh, you know, were the older people in the family as far as the, the, the their siblings is concerned, because the oldest the oldest people in the family, besides from their parents, were Bill and Bob Cowsell. Those were the oldest people, and at the time, it started as a duo between Bill and Bob Cowsell. Um, because there were I think Bill's born nineteen forty eight and Bob was born nineteen forty nine. So, you know, by the mid sixties, they were kind of out of high school or they were they were approaching being out of high school so they were thinking about maybe starting their own band and branching out into the into the music business at that point and their dad supported them um and it's interesting because their dad was very much in the industry at that time as well because he at the time was uh what uh, the the role that bud council played as as in in the group's history is that he was their manager he was their business and personal manager at that time. Actually, I think he was their the personal manager. I mean, uh, I think he, he may have been both their business and personal manager. But um, Bud Cowsell at the time was a Navy SEALs recruiter. And he was someone who was in, was in the, working in the Navy, and he was basically based out of Cleveland, Ohio. That's where he was. You know, that's, you know, that's one of the places you can go to if you want to listen to Navy is Ohio. So, um, he retired from the Navy in, in the mid sixties and decided that he wanted to essentially, uh, break into the record business. And he discovered how good his family was at that time because Bill and Bob decided, Hey, let's start a band. So I think Bob played guitar and Bill played bass and they, they all of a sudden were like, okay, why, why don't we grab it? Why don't we grab one of our other two family members and turn this into a combo where we can, where we can have two guitars, bass, and drums, just like the Beatles? Because I think in the beginning, they were mainly doing you know gigs as duos and playing all the clubs in Newport, Rhode Island, and in Ohio, too. Um, but it was a duo between Bill and Bob. That's how it started. And they're like, hey, why don't we bring in our two other family members and they can join in playing bass and drums? And so they got Barry and they got John and Barry was, I, again, I think he was an older, older, older brother. So around the same age as Bill and Bob, but John, on the other hand, was born 56. So he was quite younger than, than the other people, the other guys in the group. But that was the, the original nucleus of the group at that point was Bill, Bob, Barry, and John. And, uh, you know, at the time it was decided that, Bill would be the lead singer of the group and Bob and Barry would do backgrounds and John would be the main drummer. Now at the time, you know, the thing is, is that even though that was the original nucleus of the group, uh, 
the, 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 that wasn't the entire Kausel's family. There were three other siblings that the, that the group had at that time. There were Susan Kausel, who was the youngest, who was the youngest sister, and then Paul and Richard Kausel. Now, Susan and Paul would ultimately join the group a little bit later, but at this point, uh, they were, you know, at the time, Bill was kind of advocating that Richard join the group and be the main bass player. Actually, actually the drummer. Uh, you know, you know, Bill actually wanted uh, Richard to play drums in the band. But then what happened was that there was friction going on between him, Richard Cowsill, who was one of the older siblings in the group, and Bud. Uh, you know, they, you know, they butted heads with each other. And initially, Bill, uh, Bud Cowsill denied Bill's request of having Richard be in the group in general. And that was sort of the beginning of the friction that the group would have between them and their dad. And when when uh, when Richard was denied to become part of the group, uh, he went down a path that a lot of young men went down back in the 60s. And it wasn't it was a very difficult and very uneasy path for them. And that path is that path he went down is that he enlisted in the army and he became a, and he joined and he joined the army and he was sent to Vietnam. So when all the, when the Cowsills were having their biggest commercial success in 67, 68, and 69, Richard was fighting in Vietnam. He was not a part of that group at all at that time. Uh, and that was because, you know, the fact of the matter is, is Bud, Bud wouldn't allow him uh, to become part of that group despite what uh, Bill's best wishes were. He wanted Bill wanted Richard to be part of the group, but Bud wouldn't let him join the group. So that that was sort of the beginning of the friction that this group would have between their their dad slash manager Bud Cowsill and you know themselves, uh, you know, because you know there was a lot of problems that they would eventually have later on, but that was the beginning of that. Uh, so, um, so in the beginning, you you had Bill, Bob, Barry, and John, and that was the nucleus of the Cowsills. You know, they those were the guys that. You know, played all those clubs in Newport, Rhode Island, and you know, and the, these were the people that were the formed the first nucleus of the Cowsills. Now, at that point, they were starting to get very, very good, and they were starting to, you know, you know, really get solid as a group. So Bud took them to New York, and he shopped them around to a couple different labels, and they got signed to a couple different labels. Uh, the first one of the first labels they got signed to was a label owned by Johnny Nash called Joda Records, and when when they caught a couple songs, now granted, the thing thing you have to keep in mind is that when they were playing all these clubs, they were playing tons and tons of covers, you know, because no one, you know, when you went to a club back in the sixties, no one wanted to hear a band do their own music, you know, unless it was on the radio, no one wanted to hear it, so you had no choice but to play covers, and that's what these groups did. They all played covers of their own uh, of someone else's music. They never did their own songs. And they really never did their own songs until they got signed. Even when they got signed, they still did covers. So, I mean, you know, them these groups playing covers was just an industry standard thing that they did back then. So when they got signed to Jota Records, uh, you know, they put out a couple of singles. And these were actually original songs. I believe Bill and Barry wrote them. I think Bob might have wrote a couple of them, too. But... Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that when they when they released these songs in Jota, they bombed. So Jota dropped them. And the next thing you know, they wound up on Mercury Phillips Records, which is another New York label. Uh, also, they had an international label, too. They were an English label. Um, but 
when they wound up on Mercury Phillips, they put out a couple of singles on that label too, and both they all bombed. They never had any success. So therefore, Mercury and Phillips dropped them. But when they were on Mercury and Phillips, that's when they met two guys who would later go on to basically be very important catalysts to their career. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to stop for a minute because I want you to think about that for a minute because... You know they were they were young kids and they were and they got signed. I mean, can you imagine what the, what what they must have felt like back then for these kids who were barely out of high school to get to get signed and you know basically, I mean they were they were I think they were like seniors in high school and they were already, you know, making records. And I think John was still in in middle school, elementary. I mean he was he was really really young. And they were still, and they were, and they were making records, you know, and basically getting signed to all these different labels. And you know, they never hit yet, but they were, they were pretty damn close to. Uh, so think about that for a minute. A young group of kids, way younger than all the other sixties groups, really, way younger than them. Uh, so I mean, think about that for a minute. And then they get signed to this group, and they get signed, but then uh, no single hit singles come out. Then they discover these guys who were. House writers for Mercury and Phillips. And now let's talk about that. So the two people I'm referring to are two people that actually were very, very, that would prove to be very influential in the music industry back in the 60s. Um, their, 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 their names are Artie Kornfeld and Steve Duboff. Artie Kornfeld and Steve Duboff had previously written a huge hit for a crispy in St. Peter's called The Pie Piper, in which they recorded under their group name, The Changing Times. Now, they were The Changing Times were on Mercury Records, so they were a duo, uh, both Artie and Steve. You know, they had their own duo. And they recorded the Pipe Piper first, and then it wound up on the hands of, uh, of, of Crispy and St. Peter's, an English guy who recorded the song in England and released it in America in the fall of 66, and it became a huge hit, like number two. I mean, sorry. Summer '66. That's more correct, because by in in by July it was a huge hit, very very big hit song, for uh for Crispy and St. Peter's. So they had the success of of you know the Pied Piper, and basically by by the fall of that year is when they actually start working with the Cow Sills, because Artie Kornfeld discovers the Cow Sills, and he falls in love with their sound. He thinks, wow, these these guys are really really good. And I think they deserve a chance of making it. So when they got dropped from Mercury Phillips in 19, late 1966, early 1967, um, Artie Kornfeld decides, you know what? I, I wrote this incredible song with uh, with my partner, Steve Duboff. And I think this would be a really good fit for the Cowsills. I think they could do a really great job with this song. And... I'm going to what I'm going to do is that I'm going to basically put on my own money to record it because these guys, you know, they, they've been dropped by these two labels and they don't have a label deal right now. Uh, so they have really have no chance of succeeding unless someone takes them under the wing and decides to, uh, you know, basically, you know, give them an opportunity to record again. But th it's not going to happen unless they get a label deal. So. I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is that I'm gonna put up my own money and basically book a recording session, use my musicians and my arranger, uh, you know, to to record these th these songs that I wrote with my partner Steve Duboff, 
and these guys are gonna I'm gonna have them sing lead on them, but they're not gonna play on them. But I'm gonna fund the recording session, and I'm gonna do this without help from anybody else. I'm gonna use my own money to do this, and that's exactly what happened. Let's talk about that. So keep in mind, the Cowsills had no label deal at this point. Artie Kornfeld was basically putting up his own money to essentially um, fund a recording session for this group where he would use his musicians and his arranger to record songs that he wrote with his partner, Steve Bubov, in the hopes that these recordings would be so good that they would get picked up by a label and they would get signed. And then basically they would have major success under that label. And that's exactly what happened because they, they went into a Recording Studios in New York on 799 7th Avenue, and they and Artie Kornfeld brought in his engineer, Brooks Arthur, who is going to be um, a guest on my podcast in, in the near future. I mean, he wants to wait until April now, but, um, you know, it will happen. It's just going to be it's just going to be a while before he gets on. But you definitely don't want to miss out on when he is a guest. And you do that by clicking on the link in the description of this podcast where you can sign up for the premium description version of this podcast. But um, that's besides the point. So. Um, Brooks Arthur engineered, engineered the session, and it was at a and Studios. And at this time, you know, again, this is a very common thing with groups in the 60s, since the Cowsills were not very experienced in the recording studio. And, you know, they weren't really that, uh, they didn't spend a whole lot of time in a recording studio at that point. Uh, they, you know, they used, uh, the Artie Kornfeld, their producer, used session musicians. And what he did is that he brought in his guys that Jimmy Wisner knew and contracted. And these guys include Vinnie Bell, Charlie Mason, Yael Gregorian on guitar, Joe Macko on bass, Artie Butler on organ, Paul Griffin on piano, George Evans on percussion, and Buddy Saltzman, Al Rogers on drums. Now, here's the thing. other thing I was alluding to about, about when I talked about this song last week is that the sound effect of rain when you hear a song isn't actually rain. Uh, because the thing is, is that when uh, Artie Kornfeld was producing this record, right, uh, he was like, okay, um, uh, the, we, we were sifting through these rain sound effects, rain records, you know, these, these sound effects records that all have rain in them, but none of them sound like rain. So I don't, I don't like any of these. What do, what do you have any more ideas for what we can do? Well, check this out. So um, what what he did is that he went home and basically took a microphone and a tape recorder and recorded the sound of sizzling bacon fat when he was when he was cooking bacon one morning for breakfast. And he used that as the main sound effect for rain in the song. Yes, the sound effect of rain in the beginning of the song is bacon fat. True story. It's the sound of sizzling bacon fat like on a on a on a on a, on a skillet. In a kitchen, so that is that ex- that is exactly what that sound effect is in the beginning, and uh, it's really really interesting because uh, on the record you had you know Bill, Bob, Barry, and John singing on the song, um, but the other inter- interesting thing about happened with the Cowsills history is that uh, their mom got dragged into their you know their records as well. Because when uh, what happened was that when they were making The Rain in the Park and other things, which is the name of the song that we did last week, uh, was that when they when they were when they were recording the song, one of the people at MGM, it was already Corn and probably already Cornfell too, they were like, Hey, 
why don't we have the mom come in and record, record, you know, lead vocals? Or actually, no, why don't we have the mom come in and record background vocals on this song? And of course, the other group members like, really? Our mom's going to sing on this too? What the hell? We don't want our mom singing on this. But the powers that be at MGM and Artie Cornfield like, nope, this is a good idea. We're going to have your mom sing on this. So they're, they're, Barbara Kelsell, their mom, was mom's vocals were added in a lot later. And she became a member of the group. It was Bill, Bob, Barry, John, and Barbara Kelsell. That was the first nucleus of the group, which sang on the rain in the park and other things. And, uh, you know, it's so funny that, you know, when you're on a label, you don't really have a whole lot of say in what you can do when it came to productions of your records. But, uh, and it's so interesting that, you know, the, the label was like, hey, let's have their mom sing on it. And she did. And then she became a member of the, of the group, and which is very, very strange because that, you know, the, the Beach Boys didn't have their mom become a part of their group and neither did the Jackson five. So it's kind of interesting how their mom got involved with their group. Cause I can't think of any other family group, which had the parent also sing on the record as well. It's pretty crazy, but that's just what happened. So, and uh, let's get going. Let's, let's continue on with this. So the cow sills um, go into the studio to record the rain and park and other things. Artie Cornfield puts up his own money and then he pitches it to the guys at MGM and the guys at MGM are like, okay, great. This is amazing. We'll release this. So the Cowsills get signed to MGM. And then Lenny Stogel becomes their new manager, actually. Uh, he became he becomes their one, one of their new managers along with Bud Cowsill. So at this point, um, you know, the Rascals have a huge hit with the Rain in the Park and other things because it gets released fall 1967, like August, September. And by November, you know, December, it's in the top 10. Uh, by the by the end of, end end of uh, 1967, the record is big. It's it's huge, and they release a follow up single to uh, the Rain the Park and other things, which is actually an original song that I believe Bill wrote, a song called We Can Fly, and it became and it became a pretty decent sized hit record. I mean, it was a it was a huge hit, and the thing thing you thing you want to keep in mind is that uh you know even before they got signed they were playing gigs at the at the Bannister Wharf in Newport Rhode Island and they're also playing gigs at school dances at Stark Stark County Ohio so they were they were they were they were gigging pretty regularly actually and uh you know and and it's kind of interesting because you know at this point and they had the Heather second single right which is a big hit for them Actually, it wasn't it wasn't that big of a hit. It was it did it did okay. It was called We Can Fly, and it was original by Barry Cowsell. And then this is when things get kind of are things go kind of awry between them and their and their dad Bud Cowsell, because for their second single, all of a sudden their dad decides you know I don't and basically he tells Artie Kaplan screw you I don't want you I don't want you involved in my in my kids' music anymore. So he lets go of Artie Cornfield, and the group is like, "What the hell, Dad? Why did you do that? Why did you let go of someone, you know, who's who's a great musician, great songwriter, who's supplying us really good songs? Why why did why did you let him go? Like, why did you do that?" And so that was that was sort of the 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 beginning of how things were about to go south with the group. Because what happened after that is that at that point they you know they were left to sort of 
write their own songs, and they hooked up with Wes Farrell, who produced Indian Lake, and wrote and you know, and it was written by Tony Romeo. So I mean, they they had they had a couple of hits after this, but then they moved to Southern California. They moved to Los Angeles from New York, and you know, at that and it's kind of, kind of interesting story because they actually wound up recording Hair, which is a mu- so the title song off the Broadway musical from. Uh, you know, from a suggestion from a guy named Carl Reiner, who was a television producer slash uh, actor who was producing a television special about hippies, and they w- he wanted them to come in and basically record Hair as a favor for him, and, no- and they never and MG- and then none of them thought it was gonna ever gonna release a single yet it was, and that was kind of interesting because that was actually the first song that they did play on as a group at that point, and this was like in 1969. Uh, you know, the couple of the group members are at least 20 years old at this point. Uh, you know, they, they were a real band. They were playing on their own records. I mean, that was that was them. When you listen to, uh, you know, Herod, it was all there were no session players. It was the band playing on that session and they recorded in Los Angeles. So they did a lot of multi-tracking. And, you know, there's a whole story behind that because, you know, it got played on WLS and. They sent the acid over WLS with no name on it, and they and they said, "Hey, if you can't figure out who's on this playing, who's who's singing the song, then you have to play it." And they couldn't figure it out, so they wound up playing "Hair" on on the air, and that's how it broke on WLS and uh, big, huge top forty radio station in Chicago in the six in the sixties. Uh, it was big all across America, and it was such a huge station. And a lot of records broke broke out on WLS, so very very big station at that time. So, um. Now, I'm going to recap a couple of things before I get to the end of the show. But one very sort of unfortunate thing that happened with with Bud Castle, because first of all, like he was very abusive, both emotionally and physically to the to his kids. I mean, he was just a he was a Navy SEALs guy who was who had a very bad alcohol problem. So you can imagine that 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 could you can imagine how much of a recipe for disaster that was for this group. I mean, it was it was it was not fun to be. Uh, the councils at that point with her dad. I mean, it was you know he was just a monster, like really not good, of, not good of a guy. I mean, like, and and just it goes to show you. I mean, like the the beginning and the end of the council started when basically, uh, you know, when 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 he single handedly fired Bill Council as 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 a member of the group because he catches him smoking weed and drinking. You know, at the time when he was, I think he was almost legal at this point. Uh, but you know, this is, this is just really, really horrible because, you know, Bud Castle, you know, fires Bill and then like, you know, the, the, the the rest of the group is forced to tour without him. And by the way, after the rain and park and other things, that is when Paul and Susan joined the group. So it wasn't just Bill, Bob, Barry, and John anymore. It was Bill, Bob, Barry, John, Paul, and Susan. So they all joined the group and then Bill got fired from the group. Uh, and also, he said something condescending about his, about Bill's friend Wadi Wachtel. So, unfortunately, that you know that, that unfortunately that that sealed the deal for the group because they couldn't. It was very difficult to tour without the leadership from their older brother Bill. So, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of really not so great things happened with the group after this because, unfortunately, Bud Council mis- mismanaged their money, so they never got paid, and they wound up in being. You know, in, in, in tons and tons of debt. So, you know, they all kind of went their separate ways, but they've, 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 reu- they've reunited and, you know, they're still playing together right now. But they went through a lot of heartache after, after, the, after uh, the, the 60s ended. I mean, 
uh, you know, because Barry unfortunately passed away from he was killed in Hurricane Katrina, which is crazy. And then Bill also passed away, too. So, I mean, it was just, you know, it was a very, you know, a lot. They, the family went through a lot of difficult times after the 60s ended. But the fact of the matter is, is that they're still, you know, you know, playing, playing out all the time. And they just recorded they recorded an album a long time ago. But. Uh, you know, it's it's I, I, I would imagine it's coming out very, very soon because they said on their podcast that people who pledged, you know, who who, who donated to, you know, make the album happen are going to get the record soon. So I'm, I'm assuming that it's going to come out very, very soon. But, uh, you know, the, the councils are still persevering and they're still doing really, really good despite all the crap that they went through as a family, you know, because of their dad. Because, like I said, you can d- draw a direct correlation between them and the Jackson Five with Joe Jackson, and of course the Beach Boys with Murray Wilson. There's such a big connection between all those groups, and all and all that stemmed from their dad, unfortunately. Because uh, you know Bud Cowsell was just oh my god, he was just so terrible. But I mean, like the fact of the matter is, is that these this group is still killing it to this day, and and they and they cut some really great records. I mean, they had a very unique sound for that time. And uh, they had some songs that didn't do so well, but probably should have done better, like In Need of a Friend and Poor Baby. But, you know, they had three pretty big hits, uh, Rain in the Park and other things, uh, you know, Indian Lake, which was written by Tony Romeo and produced by Wes Farrell. And, uh, you know, Jerome Magmine, James Grado, and Galt Moderna wrote the, the title song for their musical Hair, which they covered in 69 and a huge hit with that. So, I mean, they, they, they did pretty well at that point in the 60s. I mean, even though... They weren't really a thing by the 70s. I mean, they still did pretty good. So um, you should definitely go check out their podcast. It's simply called The Council's Podcast. You can find it wherever you stream podcasts, and maybe you'll have them as a guest one day. We'll see. Okay, so a couple of things I want to mention to you about The Council's before I end this podcast is that they've been touring constantly, uh, you know, for a while now, uh, you know, in the in the, in the mid, in the in the 2010s and into the new decade as well. Um, but... I also want to tell you that the guy who actually uh, co-wrote one of their biggest hit songs, the song I did uh, this last week, Artie Kornfeld, who wrote and produced Rain in the Park and other things, he actually, after th- after he left producing the Cowsills, he actually became the main principal organizer and co-creator of the Woodstock Music Festival of 1969. Yes, him and Michael Lang and a couple of the guys were the co-founders of the festival, and they helped, and they did a lot to make it happen. So he was one of the principal organizers of that festival. Okay, so that concludes part two of episode number 166 of May 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you learned some fascinating facts about the Cow Souls and you didn't know anything about them, and you're a millennial, and like, wow, this group is amazing. You're like, wow, damn, these guys were really the precursor to the Jackson 5 and the Osmonds. And by the way, uh, there is a television show in the late 60s, early 70s called The Partridge Family, and they actually based the show off of the Cow Souls, and they were trying to get the Cow Souls on as trying to get their own tv show but their dad the dad declined them being having their own television series so they they decided to create a fake family instead and that fake family which was based off them was the partridge family but anyways so there's that and uh yeah so if you learn some really cool interesting facts about the castles you know anything about them please email me at samlcwilliamicloud.com you can also reach out to me instagram i Oli's. check out more of my original music at as per usual you can check out the official, um, uh, you know, the two interview articles I did 
last year was Shout LA and Honk and Honk Magazine. Would love if you guys could read those. And, you, and if you want to meet me in person, please let's arrange that. I want to meet you face to face? Please don't be a stranger. You can do that by emailing me at samltwilliamicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram, iheartoldies, if you're a fan of this podcast. And don't forget to also check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist of this podcast. You'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about shows so far, including some of the ones I mentioned in interview episodes. And also, do check out the official uh, premium subscription version of this podcast. You can also find that in the links to those in the description of this podcast. What I would do is sign up directly through Supercast, so that way you don't have issues accessing it like through Spotify. Instead, doing it, do it through Supercast. It's a lot easier. You can find them in the description of this podcast. And you can also find the official Red Bull merch store for this podcast. So you guys can check out all those cool different uh, merch items and you could uh, let me know what you think of uh, all those different logos um, you know or the, and the logo itself please let me know what you think of that you could do that by email me at samltwilliamicloud.com um, but yeah also um, please check out the official music video put out last year for Keep In My Back Pocket I'm going to shoot the next music video for Turquoise Apricot at the end of this month so that is going to come out very very soon I can't wait to drop that it's going to be so good it's going to be awesome um, yeah, so you can please do that. You can let me know what you think of that um, music video. And uh, you can do that by emailing me at cmltwoolly.cloud.com. And yeah, so like I said, just an in interview with the two guys from 1910 Frugum Company that's on the premium feed. And also the interview with Felix Cavalier that's on the premium feed. I'm going to do a part two for Felix. There's going to be a different part coming up pretty soon. So I can't wait to do that. That'll be the part two of Felix Cavalier's interview. So that's going to be good. And another thing you can check out is... Um, uh, I think I think that's about it. I think that's all the things that are you know typically in the description of this podcast. Oh, the EP! Uh, I put out an EP last year. Please go listen to that. You know, would love if you could you know let me know what you think of that too. You can do that by emailing me at samltwilliamicloud.com. The link to that is in the description of this podcast. I will. I am recording another EP right now, and I'll let you guys know when that is uh, when I'm when I when I have those tracks almost ready to get released. So I'll keep you guys updated on that. I'm just in the recording process for that EP right now. So yeah, so very, very exciting stuff. Um, I'm Sam Limbs, and it, thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Also, thank you for subscribing, too. If you decide to, you know, click the the, the, the premium subscription link in, this, in, in, in the description of this, this podcast and subscribe, I... I'm really in debt to you. Please, if you do that, I really appreciate it. I mean, thank you if you decide to do that. And until next week, police! Key things groovy. Groovy.